Welcome back to another episode of Debatable with your hosts Nina and Kyle. I'm Nina. I'm Kyle. And today we are joined by our good friend Hez. She is an amazing person. She is um, a longtime friend of ours. <laughs> We've had a lot of times together when we were debating in the past. She's also our motion contributor for Debatable InterVarsity for the gender theme. But today we have her over to talk about um, a certain kind of feminism that is quite new and, and quite controversial. We'll talk about that later. But we also want you to know that she is an activist, she is an agricultural engineer, and she's an intersectional feminist. And we're so lucky to have you with us for the second time tonight, because for people who are listening to this episode, we just recorded our post-debate analysis for Debatable InterVarsity. <laughs> it just so happens that um, Hez was so extra that they gave us multiple motions to pick from. And they're like, you know, all of these could be episodes, actually. So that's the background why we're here. Um, so hello. Welcome to our show again. <laughs> <laughs> Hi Nina and Kyle, thank you so much for that kind introduction. But yeah, genuinely, I really thought it was in AP. That's why I prepared three motions when you asked me for. Oh, I'm so that's sorry. Why, that's why. But no, I'm it's so good. That's good. Me. More things to discuss. So for tonight, we're going to talk about carceral feminism. And from my reading of it, it's a new brand that basically says that we need to be much more punitive. Punitive is the right word, right? Yeah. Stricter. Yeah. Punishing. Much more punishing. Rely on policing. Yeah, Yeah, rely on policing when it comes to um, gender issues. Specifically, what women go through such as exploitation, sex trafficking, rape, etc. It's sort of controversial and it's pretty new. Well, new-ish. Like the first sighting of it was around uh, 2017. 27 is not 27. <laughs> 2007. 2017. Yeah, 2017. Yeah. So that's how it um came into the limelight and it's become a highly discussed topic. What are your thoughts on it? So um I was hooked into reading about carceral feminism. Um, just a brief background why I was hooked into this branch of feminism is first I first came to know about abolitionist feminism. So Basically, it's the other side of the spectrum. So they're against carceral feminism. So when I read about, actually, it was in a podcast. And the guest in that podcast was Angela Davis. And basically, um, she was one of the activists and feminists who laid the theoretical framework for abolitionist feminism. And, And that hooked me to read more about abolitionist feminism. And... I came across a carceral feminism, which basically they are up against. And when I read more about it, I was I was riveted because, um, like to some extent, I also have preference towards uh, prison abolitionism. So, and to have the intersection of feminism and abolition abolitionism and other issues like race and gender, I think that's pretty important. And I think it was pretty cool that there were other feminists and activists out there who were talking about it. And secondly, uh, the reason I was also more invested to this particular issue is because there's this um, trans activist. Her name is Purple Rose. And um, they made a um, educational discussion or an ED on YouTube about more, more often than not, it's uh, more likely 
uh, trans individuals are also affected by um, carceral feminism or the feminist approach towards how we should address gender violence. Because oftentimes um, when the state police sex trafficking or sex workers and rely on um, state police on um, curbing these kinds of behaviors or particular actions, oftentimes individuals like people of color, trans individuals are always on the losing end and relying on state actors like police and other actors in the justice system to solve these kinds of issues predispose these minorities um, on the losing end. And it's bound to um, it's bound to hurt them more than it seeks to protect them. And actually, like when I was looking as well, like I was struck by this um, because Angelina, Angela Davis um, organization, they made a statement about critical resistance together with other abolitionists. They said that uh, regarding uh, abolitionist feminism, they said they said that we seek to build movements that not only end violence, but that create a society based on radical freedom, mutual accountability, and passionate reciprocity. In this society, safety and security will not be premised on violence or the threat of violence. It will be based on a collective commitment to guaranteeing the survival and care of all peoples. So when I read that statement and when I read more about it, um, I was informed and I was also educated about how carceral feminism doesn't really solve the other underlying issues behind gender violence. So things like economic inequality, and it also doesn't solve other reasons why individuals or why women, for example, stay in um, abusive or toxic relationships. So saying that you will imprison, for example, the partner it doesn't really solve the problem because there are other there are still other plethora of reasons and more likely cases like this will still resurface in the future even if you were able to uh, prosecute for example one particular abusive partner of a woman and those kinds of things that's why i was riveted in this particular branch of feminism as well so yeah, so basically as well, um, just a brief of background, actually carceral feminism, it was just coined recently, but like it has a bit of a long history as well. So it came to limelight as well, um, way back 1970, because um, there were feminists who filed a class action suit against the police or state police when they said that a police don't respond to um, calls on domestic violence or they don't really do enough when women make calls on domestic violence. So there so there were uh, state mechanisms that were put in place to try to solve that particular issue. That's why um, the VAWA or Violence Against Women's Act was put in place during Bill Clinton's uh, tenure, which was also one of the major quote-unquote victories of carceral feminism when the state uh, provided, I think, like $30 billion, which uh, paved the way as well to a more state police just for to solve that particular problem. So there were, they hired more 100,000 police officers to try to solve problems like domestic violence, etc. And so basically, that's the background about carceral feminism. So I actually wanted to ask, because um, you mentioned that policing them, let's say that men tend to be very violent or, or commit acts of violence against women and sometimes even children as well. 
abolitionist feminism argues that over-policing is not going to solve the root of the problem. So that makes you want to ask the question, if that won't solve the root of the problem, what actually is the problem or what is the root of the problem and what is the alternative? Like, how can it be solved? Because I'm thinking like, if we do not police them, what would we do instead to protect victims of violence? So I think it's also the same um, thought with police abolition. So instead of directing the funds, like the $30 billion funds that we allot on funding state actors like police officers and other policing mechanisms, we could redirect those uh, funds to welfare mechanisms or welfare activities by the state, which would ensure that other reasons like economic inequality and race would not play in in part and will be addressed as well in addressing these kinds of violence. But also more than that, in terms of, I think like we also have to establish how carceral feminism or just the act of policing more uh, or trying to police more Um, the actors in play in in these kinds of issues. I think like we have to also say that oftentimes, for example, like after the Violence Against Women's Act was put in place and there were more police officers that were assigned to answer uh, calls uh, related to domestic violence, more often than times it led to uh, police officers because um, the law requires that a police officer, when they get a call on domestic violence, they have to arrest someone. So, and more often the times, uh, these police officers, they end up arresting um, the woman. Oftentimes, they, even if they don't arrest the woman as well, it leads to more sexual harassment or there's this pattern of police officers raping uh, these victims who make the calls on domestic violence. So I think like just those concrete outcomes that came out of the calls for carceral feminism, the fact that there were concrete negative outcomes that came out of it, I think is an enough proof to say, or at least to illustrate why it's not working right now. Though, to be fair, I guess, I understand the intention behind carceral feminism, right? But I think it's very, I, I guess I'm also kind of biased. I'm also an abolitionist myself. Um, I'm all for defunding the police. But in theory, I do understand where carceral feminism comes from. It's the idea, for example, that if you can trust the police, which we can't, but assuming you can, if we were to trust the police, then giving them more opportunities, for example, to seize justice would lead to better outcomes for these women and perhaps even children and trans individuals in the process. Though I do understand where you're coming from that it's not as simple as that. But would you argue that even in the best cases or in countries, for example, where systems are not as bad as the United States or as bad as in the Philippines, would you still say that the harms are always likely to take place? I think I would say yes, because I think that's exactly the problem. It's speculative. So we're relying on police officers being benevolent and we're relying on police officers having the good decision making to decide who should be arrested or who's at fault in these particular instances. So the fact that we have to rely on the decision-making of these police officers who are perhaps less likely to be informed or educated or who have prejudice towards women, have prejudice towards minorities like trans people 
or people of color, I think that harm in and of itself is something that we cannot absorb. And I think that's uh, like, even if there's the propensity of these police officers being benevolent and well-educated or well-versed about these particular issues, I think that's a gamble that we cannot take like as as feminists. So I think like, I would say, even if they have the propensity to be really good officers or have the good decision-making, I think that's not enough of a reason for us to give them um, superfluous power to decide on these kinds of instances and to overfund them as well. I think that's not justified. I also read the particular argument when researching for this episode in particular that there is a possibility or some people raise the possibility that carceral feminism might just like worsen the image of feminists overall, especially to the general public who may be against police um, violence or maybe against the use of police in general. And it might also, for example, heighten calls for criminalization of sex work and other activities women partake in that may be seen as controversial. Do you think these are viable arguments? And what thoughts can you add to these given the context that we've discussed already? Yeah, I think those thoughts and reservations against carceral feminism are perfectly valid. Like I've said a while ago, um, in terms of the issue of um, criminalizing sex work, the reason why um, some trans activists who are also sex workers are against are more leaning towards abolitionist feminism as well is because there's a clear pattern of the state uh, policing and adding more violence against these gender minorities. So, for example, when they arrest um, sex workers, when they criminalize sex works and try to send them to quote-unquote rehabilitative uh, programs and those kinds of things, which they do to which they do to uh, sex workers if they don't put them in prisons. More often than not, it just leads to cycle of sex workers. Number one, uh, ending in a having to suffer through stay up police violence. But secondly, they are more likely to end up on those streets again as well. So it becomes a cycle of uh, the police arresting them. And if they have to arrest sex workers like seven times to try to rehabilitate them, maybe they're not really rehabilitating them in the first place. But secondly, the fact that they also have to put them in prisons eventually, I think that predisposes of women and other actors to more violence, especially like if you're a person of color, you're more predisposed to suffer through violence when you are uh, when you are put in jails or in those prisons because uh, statistically, these are the individuals who experience more violence in prisons. Yeah, and I suppose that in the worst case, you create a cycle where their experience in prison or... Um, the penalty that might be imposed upon them makes them even more likely to commit the same acts again. So I was saying whenever you're um, going to arrest a sex worker, it's not just imprisonment. The profits that they get from their sex work will also be confiscated um, under a doctrine called civil forfeiture. So I suppose that when that happens, even if the sex worker gets out, they would still be deep in debt. They'd still be like in, in an impoverished situation, which might actually push them back into yeah, yeah, um, exactly. that sort of system. Yeah, so I, I, I get that. But 
I also think that, and this is coming from a, a man, so take this with a grain of salt, talaga, because I'm a man. Um, <laughs> but like, I had a, a class. It was a philosophy class. It was applied ethics, um, and we looked at the law. And I don't know, medyo meninist. Like our professor is kind of meninist. Um, I haven't heard from him in a while, but he was arguing that because of he didn't use the term carceral feminism, but he was saying that because feminists were so focused on policing bad behavior, they started wanting to create laws that tended to be very vague. So his point of criticism was against the anti-rape law. So I, I personally do not agree with my professor in this point, but he said that it, it's kind of problematic though from his perspective if what constitutes rape is very vague in in the sense that only the victim gets to determine whether or not it actually happened because his argument was that in any other crime like regardless of what the villain uh, the villain the victim thinks <laughs> the, the villain still committed the same crime i think this is also in relation because carceral feminism can also be seen in the me too movement so in the high of the Me Too movement, what we do is that we were able to imprison um, sexual harassers like um, Harvey Weinstein and other uh, famous uh, individuals. And I think like this could be attributed, especially by carceral feminists. They could say that this is one of the victories of carceral feminism because we were able to um, put these um, harassers behind prison. But I think like what that fails to recognize as well is that um, it took us decades before uh, we were able to even imprison Harvey Weinstein. And in fact, even if we were able to imprison Harvey Weinstein, I'm pretty sure there are lots of other harassers in Wall Street and in workplace and other powerful men who are, who are still running free outside and harassing women. So I don't think saying that in relation to Me Too movement and carceral feminism, um, they are effective as well because we are doing we are making those kinds of changes and victories. Because more likely, these powerful men are less likely to be arrested or less likely to be found out, especially because of their power. I think it's a battle of power, really. And more likely, what we do is that we only exacerbate problems like race and inequality and economic inequality as well, because more likely men or other quote-unquote harassers who are black, for example, or who are poor, don't have the same power, are more likely to be the ones who are at the losing end or who will be arrested and affected by this kind of policing. I want to go now to the other side of this issue, which is, is there any possible way to justify um, having carceral feminism? Because... I can still kind of understand why you would want to have more focus on policing, especially for certain victims who do not think that the problem is with, you know, poverty. They just think that their significant other is very abusive and there is literally no way for them to get redress other than policing. And it actually brings to my mind a case that we took up before, back in first year, my God, um, which is a US case. I think it's called Thurman versus City of Torrington, where a wife was being abused by her husband. 
and the wife kept asking the police to help but the police said uh, it's just it's just a marriage thing it's just a squabble between spouses so they the 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 wife ended up dying um because of the inaction of the police so i i think maybe that might be the reason why the violence against women act of the united states sort of mandates uh, the police to at least take action so other than that do you think there is a way to sort of salvage the the concept of carceral feminism considering all the things that we talked about already about how it's prone to abuse how it doesn't really work how it puts the feminist movement in bad light. Is there a way to salvage the concept so that people who believe in carceral feminism can at least take solace that it's still kind of debatable? Yeah, so I think as touched on by Nina a while ago, there are still some victims or um, women, for example, or in, and even children who have benefited from the tools of carceral feminism So the fact that some victims still find semblance of justice in seeing their harassers um, going to jail, for example, or going to prison or being arrested, I think that's still something important. And second as well, I think right now we could also argue that since the redress of um, the social setup and the redressing um, social inequality as well. I think that will take a long time. And I think right now, this is the best way for us to make sure that at least there's some form of disincentive for uh, harassers or at least individuals to um, harass women or to commit acts of gender or sexual-related violence. So I think to some extent, we could still argue that carceral feminism has benefited and has done um, strides of victory, especially to victims who don't have other forms of, who have other forms of recourse on how they can have justice aside from seeing the perpetrator go to prison and being arrested and suffering. So yeah. I was wondering if, for example, carceral feminism actually had a standard for how much of the police is used Because it seems that carceral feminism is both admitting that status quo isn't enough and they want to do more, but also saying that status quo needs to be maintained in terms of police power. So I'm kind of confused on where they draw the line as to what is enough, what isn't enough. Um, Would you have been able to read a little bit more about that and maybe explain to us like what specifically carceral feminists stand for here? Actually, um, since I'm more of a, an abolitionist feminist, I don't, I didn't have like really deep, deeping to be uh, deep reading, to be honest, regarding of what they really stand for. But I think in connection to what you said a while ago, I think more than relying to uh, police officers as well on how to address uh, gender violence or sexual violence, I think the they are also relying on state being able to fully mediate in these kinds of instances. So for carceral feminists, they still have to rely on state giving enough funds, for example, to um, address issues on domestic violence and etc. Yeah, actually, I also find it a bit difficult to reconcile that. And, and I am the kind of person who is not completely abolitionist. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm the type of person that, that also kind of believes in policing. But I, I would agree that, you know, 
ACAB, all cops are bastards. Um, but I, I do personally do see the the value in policing because for me it's a it's a likelihoods thing because as you said there are many different um, reasons for why um, we have problematic men. It's a cultural thing. It's also an economic thing. But let's talk about likelihoods here. When we're talking about how to best protect victims, how likely is it that within the lifetime of the victim, we're going to correct the entirety of the patriarchal system versus like more short-term victories like getting a restraining order, a temporary or permanent protection order from the court or from the police, those kinds of things. So that's the reason why Personally, although I agree with a lot of the criticisms against carceral feminism, I still sort of see the value of having policing. And, you know, I, I disagree with the, the meninists in this issue who oppose carceral feminism because the feminists are going too far. They're making too big laws. Because, like, the problem with gendered violence is that it takes on so many forms. I, I do think that the ways that we can combat them must be similarly dynamic. In fact, I don't know why there is no reason to believe that we can't have it both ways, that we can't sort of rehabilitate or re-educate men and like have better wealth redistribution systems and at the same time police those who are just like really bad people who probably would not change even with added intervention. Yeah, I think that's true. Like, it's possible that while we are uh, working on that world that is socially equitable and free from discrimination uh, based on race and gender, I think we can have rehabilitation. And like you said a while ago, there are already trends of state actors and police me- policing mechanisms being reformed, especially with especially with the preponderance of support for. Black Lives Matter and ACOB and those kinds of things. I think we can argue that there's a propensity for police officers and other state actors be, and state institutions being reformed because the problem is that most police officers right now are misinformed about these kinds of issues. Then I think it's possible if we have that much funds for them. I think we it's very possible for us to educate them and conduct educational discussions for these officers to make sure that they make right decisions or at least they try to make well-informed decisions during these kinds of instances. So I think, yeah, it's possible as well for us to at least nudge these state actors and police officers to be better since there are already trans enemies. There are already state incentives to do so. So that's possible. Yeah, that's right. Maybe what we can do or at least what society can strive for is sort of like a balance or like a transition from one to another. Because I, I I do think that abolitionists don't really advocate for an immediate end to like all policing, right? It's a gradual process that goes from like having more rehabilitation to defunding the police gradually to outsourcing, for example, areas wherein people can help each other and have more community-centered uh, advocacies to help women and children. Um, So I guess what we can take away from this episode is that both sides are debatable. Um, It's just a matter of your context. It's a matter of the nuance that you're facing 
as well as the preference of an individual given the circumstances that they face. So I guess that's it for this episode. Thank you so much, Hezron, for being part of this with us and for recording for the second time with us. Or well, for our audience, it's the first time they're hearing you. But you will hear them again, and I hope that you look forward to it. Um, do you have any final words before we end the episode about carceral feminists or abolitionist feminism or something you want to plug in general? Yeah, okay. Thank you so much, firstly, for uh, again inviting me uh, to record these two episodes. It was a privilege for me. Second, I think in regarding to this particular issue, so I hope, I think like individuals have a bumple resistance or reservations towards abolitionism in general, but I hope they give it a read at least and to inform themselves about what are the causes or values that abolitionism stand for. But secondly, I think um, we can all, we can't really um, discredit entirely what carceral feminism has done for most women as well. I think the fact that we were able to push the state to care and make concrete actions against uh, women issues like domestic violence, I think that's still a good thing. And I think it only means that uh, we are bound to make improvements in the future. Um, Thirdly, I would also just want to give a shout out to Trace because uh, Trace is the reason why I am more of an abolitionist as well. She's the one who introduced me to the concept as well. And lastly, in terms of feminism, like just in gen, uh, gen about gender in general. So like um, movements are not homogeneous. So more likely individuals that make up a particular movement or a particular community, they don't have the same ex- uh, lived experiences and even values as well. So I hope we don't make uh, blanket assumptions or even stereotypes or preconceived notions about individuals that make up a community. And especially uh, with the uh, LGBTQIA plus community, I hope we look more deeper into other issues as just aside from the issues that are on the mainstream, like aside from discrimination, those kinds of things. I also hope we go deeper, uh, like the epidemic of violence against trans people. There are lots of... Uh, trans men and trans women being brutally killed right now, not just in US, but in Philippines. I think they've also heard about that. So yeah, so like, I guess like the last thing that I just want to say to your listeners are, I hope you stay disturbed. I hope we don't stay complicit to uh, the things that are happening to us. I hope we we constantly question why certain things are happening and to always care, even if you're not a trans person or even if you're not member of that particular gender minority. I think although we should be in the center of those partic- of these particular movements, it's still very important that cis people or heterosexuals are also in the fight and also constantly clamor for changes to ensure that con- conditions are better for uh, minorities, not just, gen- not just gender minorities. So that's all. Thank you so much for having me in your podcast. I hope you guys learn a thing or two for your listeners. Yeah, I learned a lot actually. But what, but also, I just wanted to say because um, the last thing you said was even cis and people who are heterosexual should still be in the fight as allies. I, I just wanted to share to our listeners that the third motion for the set that you sent us was about content creators 
who yeah. are actively taking the time to talk about LGBT <laughs> issues. Um, but you're like, no, let's not, because I think that I just be very defensive. Like, I don't want to hurt my own feelings by saying that I'm debatable. <laughs> yeah, so again, yun, yun. Um, thank you so much, Talaya, for taking the time. And we've been recording for an hour, more than an hour straight already. Um, this has been so fun. Like, the, the, the topics, the subject matter that we were covering was so deep and, and super serious. But because we were talking to you in particular, Um, we were able to learn a lot and it was still overall an enjoyable experience for us just to be able to sit here and have these meaningful conversations with you. So again, thank you so much. Yeah, actually, like that's also the reason why I really wanted to talk with you guys because I think there are lots of gender issues that are not talked about even in like uh, the debate setup or even in the debate community and different debate circuits. And the fact that I'm able to at least like raise some consciousness or awareness regarding this specific or particular issues which are not really talked about more often than not. I think, um, number one, I should be thankful to you guys for that, for giving me this platform to raise those particular issues. So yeah, that's all. Thank you so much, Nina and Kyle. Thank you as well. So that's it for this episode of Debatable. We'll see you in the next one. Goodbye. Bye-bye.